Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Theresa May this week surprised Westminster and the financial markets by calling a snap election, which will now be held following a vote in the House of Commons to suspend the fixed-term Parliament's Act on June the 8th. The initial reaction in the markets was to mark the pound up. The FTSE index fell by around 2% at one point and bond yields rose slightly. But what are the longer-term significance, if any, of the election call by Mrs May? The media has been full of speculation about what it might mean for the Brexit negotiations, but what would it mean for investors and for the markets? Well, I put the first, those questions to, in the first place, Mark Dampier, Head of Research at uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne, the UK's largest online broker. Later, I also put similar questions to two other market commentators, Tim Price and Charlie Morris. My first question to Mark was, how does he interpret the result of the election? And of course, she'll be uh, lucky to find uh, a time to call an election when the opposition is in uh, such a... Uh, disarray? Sort of, such disarray, shall we say. Well, I mean, it's certainly the weakest opposition I can almost any time remember. I suppose I'd have to go back to, uh, to Michael Foote, but um, both the Liberals and Labour look pretty lost, actually, in every sense. There's no real opposition, which isn't actually a good thing, because strong opposition keeps... Uh, keeps governments on their toes, so we're not seeing that at all, and it's hard not to see. I mean, it's for her to lose, is it, the simplicity of the message. I could imagine that should she lose, that the Liberals and Labour form some kind of coalition, although they've denied that, but if that did happen, I would then expect an almighty market fall. Well, I think the the initial uh, reaction, certainly the bookmakers, was I think that it was uh, 10 to 1 on that the Conservatives win most seats and uh, six to one on that uh, the Tories would get a majority. Obviously, you can argue about what size that would be. Certainly, the expectation seems to be that there's very little chance of her not getting a majority. Do you actually share that view? Would you actually put a put a, a, a saver a saver on the other on the other outcome? Well, it's, it's, you could say in a two or three horse race, that's not such bad odds actually, uh, from a, from a bookmaker's point of view. But the bookmakers and the pollsters have hardly had a very good record over the last couple of years. So you could say, well, who knows? But I would find it fairly incredible if she managed to lose a lead like that. Normally, polls are within two, two and a half percent. Uh, you've got a twenty percent lead. You really ought to be able to capitalise on that. And of course, the other bit that people haven't talked about is UKIP. I mean, why would you necessarily vote for UKIP now if you are anti anti the EU? Surely you would vote for the Tories anyway. And you could argue that the Tory majority would have been much larger had you not had the UKIP vote in. So some people will clearly vote for Liberal and maybe the Liberals get a few more seats. But but I don't think it's serious enough and I'm sure many of the UKIP voters will turn Tory anyway. 
I think that's very likely. Now, the market reaction has been, well, let's just describe the market reaction. Uh, sterling, uh, the pound strengthened a bit. The stock market came off a bit. And, yeah, uh, I don't think it was that dramatic, actually. Sterling was actually strengthening anyway before that announcement. And the market, well, you could say the market's been in a sort of trading pattern for a while anyway, and it has come off a little bit, um, but nothing really that dramatic in, in that sense of the word. Indeed, um, it's quite small by, by kind of historical comparisons. It's not like it's a, it's a significant, or it appears not to be a significant... Uh, well, it doesn't at the moment, and, and I'm, I'm kind of guessing that the, the market at the moment, although it may not share, probably shares a fairly cynical view of pollsters at the moment, is, is presuming there'll be a Tory victory. I would have thought that actually, in some respects, they'd like that. They've got five years of stability, in, in, or what they would say is stability, whether you agree with the Brexit thing or not. That they, they tend to like rather than the uh, rather limp majority that she had in the first place. Uh, I think more likely the market strengthens in due course. So just on one point, though, some people have interpreted this, you know, immediately interpreted this as saying this makes a harder or a softer mm. Brexit more likely. But given that's not going to happen for two or three years, I think that's uh, it's a pretty fine judgment to make at this point, is it not? Oh, gosh, yeah. I, I, I don't think you make that judgment call at all. Um, negotiations haven't even started and they may well soften and her having a bigger majority would seemingly help her in in that way if she wants to be so after all she was a remainder uh, and she probably would like single market access in in some respects or not so so i would have thought that would strengthen her but then of course that all depends if you presume she has a majority a bigger majority the the new intake of tory mps and what they're like and i haven't got a clue on that um at, at the present time i'm not sure anyone else has so you've got to have a presumption that most of those new MPs, if they come in, will be kind of more on her side than the very hard Brexit. But I think it's way too early to make, and I think it's way too early for the market to make those sorts of decisions as well. So just to go back then to what the you know what, what you expect from now, in a sense, not a huge amount has actually changed on a fundamental level. At least nothing that is sort of easily measurable at this particular point no, it's what, in time. What, what's changed is the media just love it all. Uh, because they love a general election. I mean, I heard David Dibberby talk the uh, talk the other day, and of course they just relish all this. So this is all grist of the mill for for them. But actually, for markets, uh, I think unless there is a shock, and I mean a shock would be that Shirley comes back with a very tiny majority or loses, then I would expect some real ramifications in certainly in the short term for the markets. Um, I can remember the '92 election when John Major surprised and won. The market, I think, rose almost 10% in the next week or so, although I might add it, it lost that with the... <laughs> didn't last very long. <laughs> it didn't last long when they realised that the economics came back and we were still, in those days, stuck in ERM. And yes. The interest rates couldn't come down and, and the market came down until September when we, when we effectively got thrown out of ERM and the market then went off on, on one. But if you look at Liberal, Labour, especially Labour policies or whatever, they're extremely un- anti-market. Uh, and I don't think many would relish that other than very hardcore Labour voters. I don't see them attracting uh, a big vote for that at all. So, so to, for me, I think the market, if anything, it depends on the next, the next few weeks in polls. If they continue to show a big lead, for me, I think the, the, the market probably goes up. But, but maybe the market lead is different. Maybe it's more 250 and smaller companies. And, you know, the FTSE's kind of lost its lead this year, but actually the 250 index is up about 7 or 8% so far this year. So I, I would still, I always look at that smaller mid-cap area as, as the place for long-term investment anyway, and I'd still go for that area. 
So in other words, you remain reasonably uh, reasonably confident about the equity markets. Uh, well, in the, in other than you know the, the, the obvious total shock that anyone you know that none of us can see, and, and I and I think the American market is is probably quite expensive. But again, before we've spoken before, I find retail clients and professional investors extremely remain extremely bearish. I see a lot of cash on the sidelines still from private clients. It doesn't feel to me there's much euphoria in this market. In fact, if anything, it's people looking for an excuse to sell. And strangely, I think that's, well, not strangely, I think that's a great backdrop to a market. So even if we saw a 10% fall in the market, or 15% fall, whatever you might want to call, I think it'll be supported. I think cash will come in. A lot of professionals would love to talk this market down at least 500 points from here, if not more, so they could get some money in. So I think, any, you know, to me, it, and this is a big black swan event that we can't see, a fall in the market would be a buying opportunity, if anything else. Uh, I don't see a fall staying a fall for the long. And final question, Mark. Obviously, we have the UK general election now. We've also got the French elections. We've also got the German elections. And, and uh, a lot of investors are also worrying about that. Do you see that as a uh, potentially a bigger factor as far as... Uh, the French European election market? in the early... T- uh, well, uh, coming up will be, will be much bigger, actually, on who gets in there. And it looks a lot narrower there on, on the, on, from a pollster's point of view. Anything could happen. Uh, and that would... That could well change the dynamics in Europe in a, in a big way, but it's not an event that I can, you, can, you can properly forecast. And, and therefore, uh, I'm not a person that's going to change portfolios on the back of tossing coins. It's just not worth it. But it does have a potential to move markets. Should it go the wrong way, um, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But if you're an equity investor, I'm afraid you just get used to that. So that was the view of Mark Dampier. For another perspective on the news this week of the impending election, I turned to two other well-known Mahu commentators, Charlie Morris, editor of the Fleet Street Letter, and Tim Price, well-known to many as a contributor to Money Week and other publications. I started by asking Charlie first whether the market was right to think that the call for the election would lead to a landslide victory for Theresa May's Conservative Party. I think that that, that sounds very likely the Tories are going to have a landslide victory. I think it's going to be uh, on par with some of Thatcher's best. And you, Tim? Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, it is very much the consensus view, but I happen to think in this case the consensus view is probably right. Um, I I look forward with keen interest to the uh, virtual extermination of the Labour Party. Well, they're quite resilient in certain places uh, in the country. Um, It's extraordinary how resilient they can be, even with... uh... Cockroaches, perhaps, might be the fair analogy. Cockroaches, indeed. And cockroaches have, uh, as we know, um, survived most forms of evolutionary uh, disaster, yes, exactly. But maybe not in this case. It's interesting that the conclusion that some people drew was that this was either would make it more likely that there'd be a hard Brexit or more likely there'd be a soft Brexit. My personal view would be that that's probably, it's probably going to be neither of those, but uh, it doesn't change that uh, too much. But uh, how, would you, how would you think about that, uh, Charlie? Well, I, I, I'm in the school of thought that thinks there's no such thing as hard and soft Brexit, there's just Brexit. And um, obviously, we want to have a trading deal, and I'm sure we'll have one. We're more likely to have one um, with Theresa May having a strong hand. And by the way, uh, German industry is lobbying extremely hard on our behalf because they don't want to see disruption. They don't want their biggest client um, to be to be damaged. And so I do think that a, a, a trade deal is very, very likely. There will be all sorts of problems and jockeying. But, but I think what the market's seen is, is actually Britain didn't die. Um, the pound went all the way down to 120. The last move from 130 to 120 last October was, was driven by the Bank of England on their QE. 
you know, it's a bit of a surprise that we have those levels of QE here and now. But, but, but basically what we've seen um, is a softening in the bond market in the United States, I'm sorry, softening in bond yields, bringing that closer to British yields, and that's given cause for the, for the pound to rally very, very aggressively over the last few days. And I also think you could add to that that that's a, you know, a positive outlook uh, for the stability of this country. You know, a strong currency is not necessarily indicating, you know, a short-term boom or growth or anything like that, but it is saying long-term, safe haven, stable, good country. And I think that's the signal markets have given us in the last week. And the, fa- and the fact that she's going to get a, or we, we believe will have a five years to actually get this sorted out and then to sell back to the electorate or to parliament or whatever combination it turns out to be, Tim, that must have given her some uh, additional... Uh, negotiating strength you would think you'd have to think so i mean clearly that's been reflected in the big the little the little jolt up we've had in in sterling over the last 48 hours the problem i have with with anything to do with brexit is this, there's still so much well there's extraordinary resistance even now and we're getting on i guess there's what nine nine months after the original referendum there's still the extraordinary resistance to the idea that's even going to happen one of the best pieces I've, I've seen on this is from john gray uh, he, he wrote a piece in last year's New Statesman almost immediately after the, the vote itself. And he was amazingly articulate about predictably there have already been calls for the, for the vote to be overturned. Those people making those calls are like bedraggled courtiers fleeing Versailles. And it's just wonderful stuff. I, I, I must admit, I, mean, I was an advocate leave um, campaigner. But I, I, first, I, I was clearly surprised by the result. But I'm, I'm just as surprised that even now the, the sort of residual background hostility to the whole thing. I, I would love it if people could just accept that we've had the biggest vote ever for anything in our history and just to accept that, you know, the people have spoken. The idea that uh, a new referendum might be part of the Labour manifesto, I mean, that's kind of music to my ears. And, and what I'd add um, to that is that, that, that the, you know, we had a referendum not so long ago um, and this is actually going to be another referendum. It's going to be a single-issue election. The other parties are going to try and drag in health and education and so on, some of the social causes. But I don't think that's really going to be what's talked about. It, it, it's going to be a de facto second referendum on um, our membership of the European Union. Last time we had just over 50% um, voted to leave. This time it will be a much larger number. Obviously lots of people from the lots of previous supporters of the Labour Party would, would like to um, come to the other side on that particular issue. And I think it could be, for that very reason, um, you know, have a, a ridiculously large Tory majority because I just think they're going to have so much natural support. Now, the Tory Remainers, the ones that Tim describes, or the Remainers, as they're sometimes called, I mean, they're probably going to have to go to the Liberal Democrats. But I just don't think there are that many of them these days. I think there probably were um, last June. But now I don't think there are very many at all because the, you know, the whole thing of Project Fear um, has basically failed. And it proves that you know, the British economy is absolutely fine. And, and in the future, it's going to be even stronger as it's able to trade with not just Europe, but the rest of the world as well. And of course, we haven't yet seen or we don't yet know what the outcome of the other elections coming up, the French and the German ones are going to be. I guess the German one is uh, more predictable than the French one. But that in turn is likely to have rather more impact on the, uh, the Brexit scenario, whatever scenario you're expecting, than the, uh, than the UK one in most, uh, in most likelihood. I think that's fair. The, I'm no, I was struck. I was over in um, uh, Japan, in, in Tokyo, in uh, January, and I had the luxury of being uh, an attendee and a presenter at CLSA's annual investment conference in Tokyo. And I was struck at how outspoken Chris Wood, who's one of their chief economists, was 
when he when he suggested that it was quite plausible that the the European Union as we know it would actually have collapsed before the UK actually managed to extricate itself. Yes, that would be uh, an interesting scenario, and uh, one perhaps that um, is not one that most people want to contemplate. I don't, yeah, I don't think that's priced in at the moment. I mean, I think there's a few people, probably myself included, that would like to think it, it, it could happen. Again, this comes that really comes back to why people voted the way they did, and the, the the problem with the debate, and the debate has clearly been poisonous on both sides from inception. But one of the reasons I found particularly annoying is that people have been making sweeping statements about why people voted the way they did. And the one that I personally find most obnoxious is the idea that 17.4 million people rejected the EU because they're inherently racist. Whereas the the way I would describe it, if I could boil it down to literally one bullet point, and there's clearly a lot to talk about, but if I could boil it down to one metaphor, it would be, I think if you're in a burning building, it makes sense to leave urgently before the roof caves in on you and that's how i describe the the state of the union at the moment not least in terms of the common currency and the the health of the periphery charlie are you quite as uh, apocalyptic as that in your uh, in your analysis of what's going to happen in europe in mean, most a lot of sense people say that somehow the the eu will continue to stagger on in some form or other and uh, and the eurozone despite its many contradictions and uh, flaws will somehow be propped up for a little bit longer or possibly for, for forever it's alive for a very long time if, if Germany wants to pay. If someone's going to pay for it, and the Germans have the money to do that. So they could, if they wanted to, um, hold the whole thing together with pieces of string, and, and, and that would be fine. But, you know, it's, it's not doing a favour for anyone. It's not doing a favour for Germany, what well, is on the export data and so on. But, but for the rest of Europe, it really is holding this great continent back. There's nothing wrong with European countries, European people, or European companies. There's just something wrong with the system that binds them. And the single currency is really a project the similar similar um, versions of, of, of what they're trying to do have never worked in history, so therefore why should they work now? So part of my suspicion of the European project was that, was a single currency. It was also the fact I prefer the governance of small systems rather than large systems. I think more gets done. I think people don't mind paying taxes so much to their county council, and they probably dislike national taxes a little more, and they probably really detest um, continental taxes. So you bring it down to, to, to the village and to the town and to the county. You know, people can sort of relate to what's being done, but they can't as these systems get bigger and bigger and bigger. So for me, that was very important. Sovereignty was also important as well. But, but the other point I'd like to make is, is a sort of economic argument. And in the short term, we're an upcycle, and it might not be a particularly strong one by past standards, um, but we are in some kind of upcycle uh, in most countries. And so therefore, the, the dirty washing doesn't smell quite so bad during an upside. It is when we're on a down cycle um, that all these things start to start to come out. So I do agree with Tim on some of his um, harsher views on, on how the EU will, will unfold. But it needs to be, it is much more likely to happen uh, when the tide's going out rather than the current time. Well, that raises an interesting point, which is that, you know, to surprise of some, but, but not perhaps to everyone, there has been indications of some kind of uh, global economic reflation going on, sort of uh, synchronised even uh, across most of the world. In the last few months, there have been some data that suggests PMIs are picking up, uh, some increase in growth and so on. Uh, and market equity markets in particular have reacted sort of reasonably positively to that. So, you know, maybe the, the, a little bit of uh, economic success or, or superior prospects might actually reduce some of these political risks that uh, are taking up so much of the headlines at the moment. Is that not a fair point uh, to make, Tim? Well, I, I'm critical of those people who sort of rather, in my view, rather lazily conflate Brexit 
with the rise of Trump, with the rise of Marine Le Pen, as if these these all these movements are somehow identical. I th- I would accept that there's there's something they have something in common, and that something in common is a sort of broad disenchantment with sort of business as usual, um, as far as the sort of you know, the experts, the elite, the sort of big business globalization perspective of things. We we are in a situation where I think you both of you gentlemen agree that uh, on conventional measures, uh, equity markets do look pretty richly valued. Not quite as richly valued as uh, bond markets are, but uh, still richly valued. And yet, on the other hand, we've got this synchronised economic growth going on and a lot of political uncertainty. So trying to pick our way through that and, and, and put, if you like, your uh, portfolios into some kind of uh, sensible order is a big challenge. So I wonder whether, you know, sitting where we do now with the UK election coming up, the other elections coming up, and Mr Trump doing his best to confuse us all with what he actually intends to do, how are you kind of positioning yourself for this kind of uh, strange and indeed rather, um, you would have thought, potentially volatile environment? I'll start with you, Charlie. Yes, well, I think the first point you made is that stock markets are richly valued. Now, there are a number of ways of coming at that. And um, on the face of it, yes, they are by you know, cape ratios and so on. But then I think if, if you go with the flow and, and assume that these modern companies that are taking over the world, like Amazon and so on, if you think they're here to stay and you're prepared to pay a not undemanding peg ratio for, for, the, for the future rather than um, hope that companies, um, you know, retail comes back or something like that. If you're, you're, you're prepared to, to, to acknowledge that these companies, because they are changing the world, are slightly richly valued and they're succeeding, then actually the market, I don't think, is as bad as, as, as the worst critiques would say. Certainly if you look at medians rather than averages. I mean, if you look at the, the aggregate earnings, you always get nasty numbers one way or another. Um, the median PEs across most markets are not that bad. I mean, GMO would disagree. Their, their, their research basically says we're in a mega bubble with a, you know, with a little bit left to go in emerging markets. And, and you know, I, I don't think it's quite as bad as that. Certainly, I mean, I, I run quant models on 3,000 stocks globally and so I have a pretty good idea of what I see. Yes, I do see most stocks sort of premium compared to their... Uh, past averages, but I don't see anything like you know the toppy moments we've had in the past. It's quite normal that markets go from a discount to a premium over the cycle, and the question is how big that premium will be. If you only ever sell at fair value, will you miss half the fun? So I do think it's quite important to to um, um, you know to, to, to not look in shock horror every time there's a there's a stock that's a bit richly priced. And within that, I, I do think that that changing the world argument is quite an interesting um, place to go. And, and it's something, the, the momentum trade, as I call it, uh, or the growth trade, if I how you will. But, but it doesn't, it's, I mean, I'll never forget saying to someone during the Greek crisis in 2010-11, um, and we were talking about the data cloud. And he said, I'm a bit worried about Greece, sir. I don't want to buy this cloud because of the, because of the you know, the Greek, the Greek bankruptcy and so on. So I said to him, well, you know what, if Greece goes down the tube, uh, more data will go into the cloud. And if Greece don't blow down the tube, um, more data will go into the cloud. So whatever happens, more data is going into the cloud. And so there's an investment theme. It doesn't really matter about the macroeconomics we discussed earlier or the politics or any of it. The fact is that, that this whole side of the world is growing very rapidly. And so even if you don't like the prices you have to pay, um, at least it's real and at least it's defended from, the, from many of the, uh, the bare stories that we, we've been discussing. Tim, you might take a slightly different view to that, I, I suspect. Well, yes and no. I mean, in terms of, I would challenge the idea that, that all markets are expensive. I, I certainly endorse the idea that bonds are basically, uh, in the, the time-honoured phrase of Kyle Bass, the Texan hedge fund manager, I mean, he, he used this phrase in relation to the Japanese bond market, but I'll use it in relation to all bond markets. Bonds are a, a bug in search of a windshield. Um, so I wouldn't dispute that. 
But in terms of stocks, although the US, by any metric that I, I can see, looks pricey, um, not, not all markets are tied by the same brush. So I was looking at the cyclically adjusted uh, PE ratio for the for the FTSE. UK UK's FTSE 100 has a, a cake ratio of just 15, which is not not expensive at all. Um, and it, our favourite market, and probably I'm boring people with this sort of broken record thesis, but our favourite markets are, are primarily those of Asia, and they're not expensive at all. They're very very cheap. So it's it's like a sort of self fulfilling prophecy. If you want to see expensive markets, you will you will find them. But not every market is expensive. I think the, the, the thing that probably is the biggest concern for me is the gadarene rush into uh, basically low-cost index trackers, notably in the US, where people seem to have come to the conclusion that it's better to get cheap access to a market than it is to get access to a cheap market. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think uh, there's no doubt that that trend is very powerful and, and uh, will take some stopping. But uh, I'm sure you're you're right to uh, be sceptical about how successful those who uh, just plunge into it uh, unthinkingly uh, will be. Just to finish that point, it's not that you know, I'm anti-low fees, far from it. I, I, I absolutely concede the point that over time, if you can keep management costs as low as possible, and that's clearly going to be in your favour, the, the problem is more of a second-order effect that I think is not well understood by whether it's well, both retail investors and professional investors. The problem, if you like, of sort of this hidden in plain sight with the likes of ETFs is that because they're very easy to trade, they encourage people to trade in and out of them as if they were stocks. And that's not the way you should invest in an equity market. Not in my view, anyway. You should invest for the long term. Yeah, can I touch on the ETF market? I mean, personally, I'm a huge fan of ETFs, if correctly constructed. I think they're a piece of financial technology, which is which is not a financial weapon of mass destruction, unlike many debt products, which are financial weapons of mass destruction. I mean, what you're doing is you're, you've got a... You've taken a good old-fashioned unit trust or open-ended fund, and you've just separated the three walls that used to sit in one house. So you, you no longer, you know, it used to be that you traded with the fund house, and it used to be that the fund house would pick the securities um, and would manage the custody. But now what you've got is a, a separate custodian, a separate trader, which is the, the market maker, and you've got a, a fund manager who's been outsourced to an index, which is just replicated. So I think the piece of technology that sits behind it is a brilliant idea, and I'm hugely supportive. Now, where I lose, um, you know, I think the, the, the industry has shot itself in the foot slightly, is tracking indices of with uh, um, illiquid underlying instruments. So if you're talking about the S&P or the FTSE 100, crack on. I do not see a danger in these kinds of ETFs. Um, the world's very used to futures, options, and all these things, um, and they've existed for a long time, uh, and they're kind of proven. And the underlying liquidity of the securities in those indices are, 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 is liquid. When you come down to exotics and small caps and thematic and leverage and negative and positive and all this stuff, this is when it's all going to go wrong. So I think provided you, you know, when, when you criticize ETFs, you say, well, actually, I haven't got a problem with um, the big ones when invested in, in, in liquid securities, but I do have a problem with the wacky ones. And, um, you know, the, the, the Gold, the junior gold mining stocks would be a great example which have had to close their doors recently. Let me finish then by asking you, because we're trying to keep this around the kind of theme of politics, the elections and the impact, but and clearly politics is a much bigger influence than it was. But in that context, how do you see the uh, the, fu- the future course of you know the sterling dollar and gold, which are kind of three key elements you have to have your mind to. I know Charlie, you have a particular interest in gold. Well, you both do actually. But uh, how would you assess those three uh, instruments at the moment, Charlie? I, I, yeah, I see it as, as in a neutral environment. We were in a bear market. We're no longer in a bear market, in my opinion. This is a dollar view, by the way. 
and um, and and that's you know, neutral's good. It's not negative, um, and it could improve if we see inflation improve. So basically, my call on gold is it's going to match inflation over the next um, five or ten years, which is um, not particularly exciting. But there again, it's it's doing something with other investments in your portfolio it might not. As for the pound, I'm very bullish. I see fair value at 150 to 160 on a purchasing power parity basis. I think the rate differential between Britain and America will um, will decline at some point. And um, you know, and I'm very um, optimistic about the future of this country. So I see no reason for the for sterling to collapse. Nor do I see hyperinflation on these shores in isolation relative to other countries. So I'm bullish on the pound. As for the dollar, you talk about it against the global basket generally. Yes, of course. Sterling. And and so so against the world, you know. You know, I, I, I fear it does go up, and that, that's one of the things that will put the brakes on um, on the sort of current calming markets. But but really, the thing that would kill the bull market in equities, just to digress slightly, um, is a massive hike in rates. You know, so, so that's enough in, in our favour because if you had a massive hike in rates in the US, then that would force the dollar higher, which would kill the bull market. So that's one reason um, why why our friends at the Fed might might keep things soft. And Tim, what's your what would be your take on those three things? There's a very, very brief thought experiment I'd like to sort of share with you. Imagine that, that someone went back in time to visit you in, let's say, summer 07 and said, here's what's going to happen. Wall Street is going to experience an, a near extinction level event. Lehman Brothers will fail, be the biggest bankruptcy in, in history, in US history. Um, interest rates will be slashed to zero and in some cases below it. The authorities will print trillions and trillions of dollars, pounds, euros and yen. The UK will vote to leave the EU. Donald Trump will be president. What would you think would happen to investment markets under that array of developments? My point being, even if you could have predicted all of those events, I'm not sure you'd necessarily have made money with that knowledge beforehand. So the idea that it's even worth attempting to to waste time on prediction of what's likely to happen, increasingly for me, is just a mug's game. So to go back to sort of like the question of how, how we're sort of managing money, if you like, or where, where, how our portfolios are constructed, we invest across, very briefly, we invest across four things. Objectively high quality bonds on the basis that we don't know what the future holds, um, ideally with some kind of real yield. We invest in value stocks, very defensive value stocks globally. We invest in trend following funds, which are completely uncorrelated to stock and bond markets. And we invest in gold, things like gold and silver. And the beauty of that approach is uh, it covers as many bases as we realistically can cover. And it's effectively, I would like to think, and I'm touching as much wood as I can lay my fingers on at the moment, it's pretty much future-proof. It effectively means we don't have to try and predict stuff. So although I have a view on, I think sterling is cheap, I agree with Charlie there, Um, I'm a huge bull on gold, Um, A, because it's, it's sort of ongoing portfolio protection and insurance, but it's also like tail risk insurance in the event that things do fall apart. Markets don't need to be expensive to collapse. In 1987, the S&P 500 was not trading on a Cape ratio of 29. It was trading on a Cape ratio of mid-teens, and it still lost a quarter of its value in a day, or the, the Dow did. So uh, there are all kinds of things that could potentially happen. The best advice I could give anybody in terms of you know how we're going about trying to weather the storm is diversify sensibly, and, and, and try not to worry too much about the future. I certainly agree with um, with many of those points that um, that Tim made on gold. Of course, it's a it's an option that's there for, for a bad day. So so that, that that's a given. Um, and I and I agree. We shouldn't worry. We should just you know sensibly diversify and, and, and own the good stuff. My growth fund is is diversified. Is as it says, the Tim diversified 
And it's it basically there are four different equity strategies. There's a strategy that focuses on high quality, uh, which is a long-term buy and hold Buffett-like approach, a growth approach, which I described earlier um, in stocks that are changing the world, a value approach where we scour the world looking for things that are unnecessarily cheap, particularly in emerging markets. Uh, and then finally, there's a, there's a gold and precious metals and a real asset strategy. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast hosted by the author and professional investor, Jonathan Davis. An archive of all our podcasts can be found on the website www.money-makers.co and also on iTunes and several other popular podcasting channels. We are an editorially independent business with a primarily educational purpose. If you are interested in investment and have enjoyed this conversation, I do hope you'll join me again for more discussion of current topics with leading professional investors. Thank you for listening.